Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. One of the things that's true about every family is every family has a set of values, family values. Um, and, and it doesn't matter if they're clearly defined or just somewhat implied, um, but every family has a set of values, good or bad. We all have family values, and it pretty much determines our life. It kind of shapes our character and, and what is important to us. It kind of just defines who we are as a family. For example, for me, growing up Jensen, we learned the value of being hardworking, wasn't a value I was particularly excited about, but my father instilled it in me. If you are a Jensen, you are going to be hardworking. Another big family value for me growing up was a sincere faith that we learned and, and, and believed and trusted in God in every aspect of our lives. Um, and, of course, being Scandinavian, another big family value for the Jensen family was we learned to be financially frugal, okay? That was a value that I grew up with. And, and you grew up with them, too. And, and they kind of defined who you are, whether you re- fully embraced them or, or rejected them. They had an impact on your life because that's what determines really who we become. It's our family values. They become our own values. And that's not true just of individuals and families. It's also true of communities. And, and we are better individuals when we are part of a community of shared values because, because it, it, it continues to work its way into our lives. We are also better as a community when we share common values because we can work together for certain aims and goals. And if our values are correct and online, um, then, then the world around us, the community around us is better when we share these values together. And so we thought as a staff, as we begin 2014, is that we wanted to talk about Northgate's family values. What is it that makes Northgate, Northgate? What are the things that are important to us? What are the things that define who we are as a faith community? And how do we work those things out? And so for the next five weeks, the first five weeks of 2014, we're going to be talking about Northgate's family values. What makes us better together? And we're going to start with one that I think is foundational to all the others. And it's that we would always be a grace-filled community. Now, that is much easier said than done. You can say those words, yes, we want to be a grace-filled community, but how that works itself out is far more complex and complicated. It's no easy thing. And we shouldn't be surprised about that because it was not easy for the first century church. In fact, that you find in that first century church, they really had to grapple with what does it mean to be a faith-filled, a grace-filled community? How do we live that out? How do we work that out? How does that show itself in our own values as a church? The first century church struggled with it. Church has all through the last 2,000 years struggled with that. What does it mean to be a grace-filled community? So we're going to take a look at that to start with this the first Sunday into 2014. And we're going to start with this idea of what is a grace-filled community. And if you want to turn to Acts chapter 10, because that's where we're going to start. We're actually going to look at three different passages, um, Acts 10, Acts 15, and then in Galatians chapter 5. And you're going to kind of see how this worked itself out in the beginnings of that first century church. And it all starts in Acts chapter 10 with a very strange dream. little dream music here okay it starts in acts chapter 10 beginning right in the middle of verse 9 and it started talking about the apostle peter it says that peter went up to the roof to pray 
He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like large, a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. And it contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything unpure that God has made clean. This happened three times. And immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. And while Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. And while Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, We have come from Cornelius the centurion. He's a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. And you're probably thinking to yourself, you're right. That is a really weird dream. And what does that in the world have to do with a grace-filled community? Well, see, it all goes back to this one dream. In this one dream, God began to make an inroad into the Gentile world like never before. And it has to do with the very first thing we're going to talk about in a grace-filled community. And it's this, that in a grace-filled community, people are welcomed just the way they are. See, the reason this dream was so important is, for the most part, up until this moment, this whole Christianity thing was pretty much a Jewish religion. Jesus was Jewish. All 12 of his disciples were Jewish. The first church began in Jerusalem. The promise of a Messiah was a Jewish hope. All up until now, it had all been a very Jewish thing. And there's a couple of things about being Jewish. One of the things about being Jewish was you were different. You were different. You were separate. You were called to be separate. You were God's chosen people. And that meant there were certain dietary restrictions, among other things. There were certain foods that through the Levitical law were deemed to be impure or unclean, not kosher. We have that to this day. Certain categories of food were considered impure, unclean, not to be eaten. And not only were there categories of impure and unclean food, there were also categories of impure people not to be associated with. And so this dream that God gives to Peter and repeats it three times was, was, was a huge thing. When this, when this sheet comes down and there's all these animals that are filled with impure, unclean animals, never to be eaten, and this voice from heaven comes and says, take, kill, and eat. That, that, that's, that's horrifying thought to Peter. You would never eat that stuff. Philip Yancey in his book, um, What's So Amazing About Grace, says it would, be like, it would be like a convention of fundamentalist Baptist churches coming together in Texas Stadium, and in the middle of it, a fully stocked bar came down in the middle and said, Drink up! <laughs> and everyone would say, Surely not, Lord, we don't touch the stuff. <laughs> That's what it meant for Peter. 
And his response, God, why would you ask me to do such a thing? Those are impure foods. And I'm not to touch them. And this was so important that God gave him, it tells, he gave him this dream three times. Which if you know anything about Bible research and Bible study and, and understanding God's word. When God says something three times, he's trying to make a point. And he was saying to Peter, you're not having this dream just because you're hungry right now. This isn't some you know, wild fascination. This is from me. And he knows that because on the heels of the stream, while he's still trying to figure out what in the world that was all about, there's a knock at the door. And these three guys who were representatives of Cornelius, who was a Gentile, who was a Roman, who was a centurion, a part of the Roman Empire and part of the Roman army, these guys come knocking. And all of a sudden, Peter makes the connection. God's calling me to talk to those unclean Gentiles. In fact, you know that because when he gets to his house, he comes to Cornelius' house a little bit later on in that chapter. And the first words is he comes through the door. Now, you are well aware that's against our law for a Jew to associate or to visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. You see, Cornelius was one of those people. And here's the point. You never know what is going on in somebody else's life. You have no idea what they have been through. You have no idea what they have experienced. You have no idea what brings them to you and across your path. And more importantly, you have no idea what God is doing in their life. And that's so important to understand. Because you see, we make judgments about people all the time. We categorize people. We have, in fact, let me ask you this morning, if in your heart of hearts, if you were truly honest with yourself, what is that category of those people to you? Might be political persuasion. You know, if you're a conservative, you hate those liberals and what they're doing to our country. And if you're a liberal, you can't understand those staunch conservatives and what they're doing and why they're so un, un, uncaring and unhelpful. Because of a political point of view. Maybe it's an ethnic group of people that you just have a hard time accepting. Maybe it's a social group of people or an economic set of people. Maybe it's not a group of people. Maybe it's just an individual that has hurt you or harmed you in such a way. Or you look at their life and what they're doing with their life and you just can't, you just can't abide it. But I would dare say, in every one of our heart of hearts, if we were truly honest with ourselves, there is a certain segment or an individual who is one of those people. And you have no idea who they really are. And you have no idea what God is doing in their life. Peter had no idea what God was doing in Cornelius' life. But God had been at work in this Gentile. And he had been drawing him. And Cornelius would never have known the love and acceptance and grace of God if he did not first experience the acceptance of Peter. And to be a grace-filled community means 
We welcome everyone just the way they are. And I'm going to tell you here this morning, it doesn't matter where you've been or what you've done or what brought you to this place this morning. You are welcome here because of the grace of God. Because in a grace-filled community, people are welcomed. Not just accepted, people are welcomed just the way that they are. Because the truth is, we are all in desperate need of grace. And we are all equally accepted because of his grace. See, that's what Peter began to realize. He said, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. It's beginning to dawn on me that this is not just for a certain segment of people, not just for a chosen few. This is meant for everyone. And as he began to think back about it, he began to realize that that had been God's plan all along. He said, all the prophets testify about him, meaning Jesus, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That God's plan all along had been this unfolding story of grace, finally fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That God looked at us and saw in us something of worth, no matter where we had been or what we had done, and knew that we could do nothing on our own to be made right with Him. He had to do it for us. And that's why Christ came and gave His life on a cross and did for you and for me what we couldn't do for ourselves. That is the message of grace. And it's not for a select few. It's for everyone. And in a grace-filled community, everyone is welcomed just the way they are. Beyond that, in a grace-filled community, people are treated with the same grace that we've received. That was a big, big move for the Christian church, that early first century church, to discover that God was not just for their people, He was for all people. That 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 was a huge, huge thing. And it didn't just happen with Peter, it actually happened with the Apostle Paul. Paul and Barnabas went out and first started going to to Jewish converts and then started finding that there were Gentiles who were coming to faith. And it kept happening over and over and over again. And more and more of these Gentiles started becoming followers of God, followers of Jesus Christ. They put their faith in in Him and, and experienced His grace. And here became the big issue because, you see, in the past, anyone who became a convert, if they were a Gentile and became a convert to Judaism, there was one requirement. If you were male, didn't matter how old you were, if you became a convert to Judaism, one of the signs of your conversion was you got circumcised. Talk about tough membership requirements. (laughs) But that was the mark. That was the way you knew if someone was truly a follower. And so the big issue came up. Okay, now we know that we are saved not by our works. We are saved by the grace of God. But but how do we know if that's a true conversion? Are we going to require these new Gentile believers to become circumcised? And that was no small argument. That was a huge, huge debate. Because that was something that had been given by God. It was the, it was the physical mark. It was the external um, 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 proof, if you will, of conversion. And so are we going to require now these new believers that are followers now of Jesus, are we going to require them to do the circumcision thing? 
And it was no small debate. In fact, it became such a huge divisive issue in that first century church that they actually called together the leadership of the church for a special council in Jerusalem. You find it over in Acts chapter 15. What are we going to do with these new Gentile believers? How are we going to know that this conversion is for real? And by the way, that's not just something that happens in the church. That's something that we do all across society. We are always looking for these boundary markers. James Dunn talks about it in his, in his commentary of Romans. He talks about this idea of boundary markers, these external things by which we look to to prove someone's worth or someone's who's in and who's out, if you will. And, and it's not just in the church. It's, it's actually all the way across society. For instance, let me give you one example. If you are in San Francisco in the 60s, and you see someone with very, very long hair wearing a tie-dyed shirt, driving a VW microbus with a bumper sticker that says, make love, not war, you would know that that person is a hippie. Yeah. How do you know? By all those boundary markers. That defines who's in, who's out. They're a hippie. 20 years later, 1980s, you're driving in Marin County, and you see someone driving a Beamer convertible, wearing penny loafers and a sweater tied around their neck. That person you know is a yuppie. Yeah. It's all the externals. That, that's how you know. You see, you, see, you see someone riding a Harley Davidson chopper dressed in black leather. And they've got chains and tattoos up and down their arm. And you know that person is? Who said a Raider fan? Somebody said a Raider fan. No. It's a biker. A biker. Okay. Those are those external boundary markers. And we have them all through society. It's the way that we tell who's in and who's out. And that kind of became the question for the early church. Who's in and who's out? And by the way, the church has struggled with that for years and years and years, all through the centuries. We have always tried to find these boundary markers to prove that someone is truly a convert to Christ. The church that I grew up in, wonderful church, but there were certain boundary markers. If you were a good Christian, you don't smoke drink or chew, and you don't go with girls that do. (laughs) You don't dance. Yeah. And roller skating was a little suspect. Because that could be dancing on wheels, you understand, okay? Now, nobody came out with that list and said these are the... It was just the values that I grew up with. These were the boundary markers by which we defined who was a good follower of Jesus and who was not. The trouble with that is, is that sets in motion this performance type of religion. And whenever religion becomes about performance, two things happen. For those who keep the rules, pride sets in and a sense of superiority. And for those who cannot keep the rules feel like they're always on the outs. And they're always trying to perform to be accepted. And that was the issue for the early church. And it was a big issue. And the dispute was pretty heated. They spent a great deal of time debating it back and forth. Peter got up and talked about his dream and his experience with Cornelius. Paul and Barnabas got up and started talking about the the way that the gospel was reaching these Gentile believers. And in fact, Paul put it this way. He says, why do we test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as 
they are. You see, people who have experienced the grace of God are required to extend his grace to other people. And the only thing that can be added is nothing. <laughs> nothing. It is the grace of God. Whether you are Gentile or Jew, whether you are conservative or liberal, those who have experienced the grace of God are required to extend His grace to others. And let me tell you what that means. That means it takes a lot of patience because people mess up. It takes ongoing mercy and forgiveness to allow people to still find forgiveness even when they've messed up. The decision at the end of that council, James, brother of Jesus, who was then the pastor of Jerusalem church, after all this had been said and done, came up and he said, this is it. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. We're not going to add anything on top of grace. And you know what? That has become one of those life verses for me and my ministry and for us as a church. If you want to know something about Northgate, we're about not making it difficult for people who are turning to God. That's what a grace-filled church looks like. And I made an agreement because, see, performance religion can easily set in. It is so easy to slip right back into it. And I made this agreement with this church at the very, very beginning. I, I made this promise. I said, I will never perform for you. And you will not have to perform for me. We're here to encourage each other and help each other. And not make it difficult for those who are turning to God. And the last one. In a grace-filled community, lives are transformed from the inside out. See, when you take away performance, religion, then real faith has a chance to take root. When people aren't busy trying to keep up appearances, they're allowed to be open and honest with their struggles and their faults. And to find real help, real forgiveness, a fresh start. And lives are transformed by grace. You would think, you would think after that big council and all of that debate, you would think that once that decision was finally made and solidified and encouraged all the... You would think that that would settle the issue once and for all. And you would be wrong. <laughs> Because it doesn't work that way. Grace is something that has to be fought for. Because here's the rub. See, if you, if you keep preaching, it's only grace, it's only grace. It's all about grace. And, and you keep telling people that no matter where you've been or whatever you've done, God can forgive you. God can restore you. You see, the rub of that is if you keep making that your message, there's always the danger that people will take advantage of that. That they will abuse this idea of grace. I mean, after all, if I know that no matter what I do, God will always forgive me, 
then I could just go out and do anything I want to do because God will always forgive me. And if I know that ahead of time, then, then you're just going to open up the doors for the people to just do whatever they want to do. And they're going to indulge in all kinds of sin. And they're going to do all kinds of things because they know you can't let them know God's going to forgive them. You got to keep them under wraps with guilt. <laughs> and that started to happen in the, in the Galatian church. In fact, most of the New Testament are letters by the apostles written to churches clarifying and correcting and explaining this whole idea of living by grace particularly with the Galatian church because there was a whole segment in that church still that was all about the you know keep them under wraps kind of a deal and Paul wrote to this church and he said listen I can't believe you I can't believe having started with grace what makes you think you can finish it by your own efforts who is bewitching you how could you abandon the grace of God so easily when that was your only hope. Yes, there is always that danger. But you can't add anything to grace. There was a group that were emphasizing and saying, no, they still need to be circumcised, still need to be circumcised. And Paul wrote to them. He said, no, there is another option. Not forced conformity. In Jesus Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. That is another one of those fundamental verses to who we are as a church. If you want to know, bottom line, what Northgate is about, we are about not making it hard for people who are turning to God. Because the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. In fact, that's a good memory verse for the day. I would like you to just say this out loud with me. Maybe not the whole verse, just that, that last portion. Would you say it with me? The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Okay, some of you haven't quite bought into that. But this is the Bible, it's scripture, it's true, okay? So say it like you really understand it. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Again, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. What is the only thing that counts? Faith love. And that is the definition of grace. Faith expressing itself through love. It all comes back to grace. You are called to be free, Paul writes, but do not let your free, do not lose your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Let me tell you how that works. I love my wife. But I also have this tendency to be lazy and selfish and a little unsensitive. I know, I know, it's hard to believe. But it is true. You could ask my wife. She won't be happy to verify for you. I love her but I have this tendency to be just a little bit selfish and insensitive sometimes and oblivious. But in 37 and a half years, I've gotten a little better. <laughs> Not because my wife gave me a list of requirements and told me this is what you have to do if you want to stay married to me. It changed because I love her. If I love her, 
I'm going to try to be a little more sensitive and a little less selfish and a little less lazy. Not because it's a requirement, not because it's a code of conduct, but because I love her. And that's what Paul's trying to say. Say, yeah, we could keep people under wraps with the code of conformity. Yes, we could require all kinds of things and add all kinds of things on top of it, but that's not going to change somebody's heart. And God is not interested so much in your strict conformity to a set of rules and regulations. What He wants is your heart. What He wants is your love and to know that you are loved by Him. That's why the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And that kind of change happens now from the inside out. That is the power of grace. That is the power of grace. And that is why for my church, for our church, for us as a community of faith together, my prayer as we move into 2014 are the words of Peter. Peter, who had that vision years and years and years ahead of time, wrote to the churches, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grow in grace. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For to Him is the glory, both now and forever. Would you bow your heads with me? Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship, located in Venetia, California. Thank you.